few years ago, I went to a conference where the speaker was a master discipler. In the course of his presentation on passing our faith to the next generation, he explained how he had a different Bible study program for each of his children, and he had a bunch, and how he was also teaching them Greek so that they could better understand the Scriptures. As he spoke about his Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday plan, I could feel a weight of condemnation coming down upon the room. It's not that he was correcting anyone. It was just that it was clear the guy was a genius, and I'm guessing that his kids were as well. But everyone else in the room felt like they didn't measure up, including me. I was the next one to speak. I got up to the podium, and all I could see was a sea of gloom. All across the auditorium, the folks displayed somber expressions. They sat with slumped shoulders, low in their seats. I could tell they felt defeated. I realized that I actually needed to change my message and take an opportunity to encourage them. I worked to refocus their gaze upon God, who is able to use even our most feeble attempts to reach and transform our children's lives. My wife and I, we have six children, and we homeschooled them all through high school. It was a challenge, but God helped us through. Our youngest, Amelia, graduated high school this month. No one shouted louder than my wife and I as the MC presented that homeschool graduating class as the graduating class of 2021. But getting those six kids through high school was not easy. We didn't think we would make it a time or two. I was glad to teach them English, let alone trying to add Greek to the curriculum. I wasn't going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. For those of you who are parents tonight, I want to lift your spirits. I want to take a weight off of your shoulders. Sure, we are called to disciple our kids and teach them theology, but God does the heavy lifting in the process. We don't need to be fantastic. We just need to be faithful. And even then, God often uses our failures more than our successes. He's like that. Folks who find out I'm an author will ask me, so what have you written? They tend to roll their eyes when I say, family devotionals for discipleship and a systematic theology for children. I get the impression that they think I'm some out-of-touch library nerd. Uh, Sometimes, in response to the word systematic theology, they ask, what's that? The word theology, I tell them, is the study of God, theos. The word systematic simply means something that is well thought out and logically organized. So what is systematic theology? A well thought out study about God. I entitled my Systematic Theology for Kids, Theology, as a play on the word theology. The suffix ology means study of, so my theology title means the study, the ultimate study, and of course the ultimate study subject of all time is God, which is what you get when you put them together, the study of God. The truth is, I'm not spectacular because I've written those books. I'm just an average dad tapped into an amazing God. And I really believe the message that God spoke to Paul. My power is made perfect in your weakness. I've seen God move in the lives of my children in spite of my failures, and I'm convinced He wants to work 
in the lives of your children in spite of your failures as well. I wrote my books to give moms and dads like me a tool to use to disciple their kids and help them making it a little easier to be faithful to the task of training up their children in the faith. My goal, if you are a parent here tonight, as I said before, is to lighten your load, not add to it. Lift your shoulders and inspire you to spend time with your children, passing on the amazing truth God has already opened up our eyes to see. I want you, I want to help you tell them the story. It's as simple as that. So let's open up our Bibles to the story and review just a small part of it. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus 10, and we are going to look at the eighth plague, the plague of locusts. Now, you remember Charlton Heston in the 1956 epic movie, The Ten Commandments? It became the highest grossing religious movie until 2004 with the release of The Passion of the Christ. We're going to read a slice of that story today, The Plague of Locusts. Now, if you're wondering what grasshoppers have to do with passing theology on to your children, you're in good company. That's what I first thought when someone mentioned that to me. So let's see if we can discover it together. Exodus 10, starting in verse 1, we'll read down to verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell on the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them so that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. They shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. They shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came onto the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, the Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. Lord, I just ask that you would encourage these fine folks here today with these words. That you would help us to mine the truth of your word, and let it be a motivating force. I pray that parents would be encouraged, that they would see that the task of passing on the truth of a powerful God is an easy task, and that the transformation of their children is not their job, but that of their powerful God. Help them to be faithful. Help them to be excited to pass on this truth, this story. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, here comes the plague of locusts. 
So what does this unfolding drama of the Exodus and God's larger plan of redemption have to do with teaching theology to our children? What does this story have to do with our sons and daughters? Well, this is what we discover from this passage, is that God's redemption of man is a generational plan. God is a God of the generations, and He wrote a story for us to tell. Our kids learn about God when we pass on that story. God wrote this story for our children. Let's look back to verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I might show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them. God does not have in mind a single generation. In the hearing of your son and your grandson, the whole Exodus account we discover here is designed by God to reach the generations that he already loves. He already knows them. He's planning to reach them. Yes, God is saving us, but he is ever looking forward. He's ever looking down through the corridor of time toward the future generations that Israel represented, that even we today represent. It's as though he's saying this to Moses, I am saving you so that you will know I am God, but I'm going to do it in such a way, in the most spectacular way for the generations that come after you. You, Moses, are going to have a redemption story that is unmatched in all the stories that have ever been. I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let you go, so that I can display my deliverance for you, but more importantly, for your children and your grandchildren. In fact, the word in the Hebrew is more like the word progeny for your generation. So I am going to do this in such a way that you'll have a story for the generations. Because God's plan of redemption is a generational plan. And telling the story is a part of that plan that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I've dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them. Isn't it kind that God would give us, as parents, something very specific that we can do to participate in this wonderful plan of salvation? God, He's given us our job description. What is our job description? It's not saving our children not something he's delegated. This is what he's delegated. It's simple. It's easy to do. Tell them the story. Tell them the story. It's a powerful story. It's an amazing story. I've written it for you. And this is what I'm asking you to do. Tell them the story. All history has been orchestrated by God to give us a story to tell them. So that when they ask you, why do we go to church? Why do we read the Bible? Why don't we do what the other families do and play soccer games on Sunday morning? You have a story to tell. It is possible to teach our children math, science, and history, but miss the central role that the gospel plays in their lives. What good is it? If our children become successful in life, but do not have this most important truth, they could gain the whole world and lose their eternal soul. When we tell them the story, we connect them to a God who saw them before they were ever born. We connect them to a God who wrote this most magnificent story with them in particular in mind. 
And this story begins way before the first plague. As I know you know, because you're well taught, the story begins just after the fall. When looking down through the corridor of history, God tells Eve, I will raise up one of your children to crush the head of the serpent. And it carries forward through this accident account, account to the last plague, where we see in the Old Testament the most amazing foreshadowing of God's salvation as the plague of death is going through the land and those who have the blood of the lamb on their doorpost and lintel escape the judgment of God, the Passover, which is what Jesus has with his disciples just before he dies. The Lamb of God, John says, who takes away the sin of the world. So you see, the story we have to tell is meant to be passed on to generations and is more than the locusts. It's the story of the gospel. The same declaration that God made over this particular plague is over the entire gospel story. God wrote the story for their salvation. He's got an end in view. Look what it says. Verse 2b, you're going to tell them the story that you may know that I am the Lord. I'm doing this so that you have this truth that you'll be able to pass on and it will result in this saving act that people will know that I'm the Lord. Your children, you, the generations will know that I'm the Lord. You need to imagine that God is speaking these words over your son or daughter. I wrote this story of redemption for you, Mary, for you, James, for you, Jennifer, for you, George, that you may know that I am the Lord. When parents ask me, what can I do to ensure that I'm doing a good job educating my children? What should I do for devotions? I give them a simple answer. Tell them the story. Tell them the gospel. There is power in the story to save. Catch the heart of God for the generations and tell them the story. Listen to what Ted Tripp says about God's powerful story. People frequently ask if I expected my children to become believers. I usually reply that the gospel is powerful and attractive. It uniquely meets the needs of fallen humanity. Therefore, I expected that God's word would be the power of God to salvation for my children. But that expectation was based on the power of the gospel and its suitability to human need, not on a correct formula for producing children who believe. What, what's Ted Tripp saying? Did you expect your children would believe? Oh, yes, but not because I had the right formula. Because I had the right story. I had the right message. It was powerful, and I know that God is going to use it to transform their lives. We need to have such confidence. If we do, it will help fuel us and motivate us to want to do what? To tell them the story. Now, I want to introduce you to uh, our family hero. We have a family hero, particularly it's on my wife's side of the family. It was her grandfather, and I dedicated my book, The Ology, to him. Uh, he is known as the patriarch of her family, and uh, he did two things. He prayed for all of the children and all of the grandchildren, and when he died, at 104 years old, all of the children and grandchildren were believers. And the second thing he did was he wrote letters. He wrote letters to the children and the grandchildren. He wrote letters to a lot of people. And the characteristic, unique component of his letters were his testimony of the story, telling the gospel to the people that he wrote to. Now, it was interesting 
I've met people both in her family and outside of her family who um, received letters from her grandfather. And they all did this. They saved the letters. One woman I talked to said uh, her, she was, her husband had passed years ago already. She was, I think, 80 at the time. And she said, I saved all of his letters. I never even saved my husband's letters. But I saved these letters. And I would bring them out and have people read them to me because of how they testified to Jesus Christ. He was so desirous of getting the story out. He told the story. And he prayed that God would use that story. I want to read to you an excerpt from a letter that he wrote to my wife when she was uh, growing up. Uh, my wife saved all his letters as well. And we were moving from our first apartment into our house. It was time to kind of go through things. I didn't go through things when we got married. We just like threw everything in the extra spare bedroom. Uh, now it was time for me to go through. I'm like, okay, what have we got all the electric bills for? Get rid of that. What are these letters? Who's, oh, that's your grandfather. And I pulled out a letter and I read this. Dear Lois, peace be unto you. This is your grandpa, an old man, 94 years old. Time to go home. He didn't realize he had 10 more years at that point. But I have 13 grandchildren, and the question comes to me, how many of them will follow in my trail? How many will I meet at the judgment seat where we will all meet someday? To how many will I hear him say, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world? My prayer is, Lord, please bring all my children and grandchildren with me into glory. I would like to meet them all there. What did he do after that? He told the story, the gospel story. He knew prayer combined with telling the story was a powerful combination. Jim Berg wrote a book called Changed Into His Image. He dedicated it to his three daughters saying that the, bro the book was a travel brochure for them, enticing them to fellowship with God and to behold for themselves the breathtaking vistas of the glories of God in Jesus Christ. And this is an excerpt from what he said in the intro. I have told you before that your mother and I will probably not be able to pass on to you any kind of earthly inheritance. If we can pass on to you a passion for God, however, we will have given you something more valuable than silver, gold, or rubies, and more satisfying than anything a mortal can experience. Your mother and I can honestly say, we have no greater joy than to hear that our children walk in the truth. May God use all of these to draw you to a greater love and devotion to our matchless Savior, Jesus Christ. You truly are our beloved daughters in whom we are well pleased. And what did he fill his thick book with? The gospel, the story. He said, I have no money to offer, but what I have is better than silver and gold in the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk and believe. That's what God wants us to give our kids. He wants us to tell them the story. Read the story to your children. Read books about the story with your children. One of the commitments I have made with every book that I have written, whether it be a Bible study, a parenting book, fiction, a systematic theology, a study in the Psalms, everyone is designed to provide a tool for you to tell your children the story. In a small way, I'm stepping into the shadow of the legacy of Carl Rausch, my wife's grandfather. And I want to make it possible for the most amount of moms and dads 
and caregivers to be able to tell the story. So one thing you can be sure, you may not like a book that I have, but you'll know this, that if I read this book, if we share this book as a family, one thing will be true. I'll be telling them the story. However you choose to do it, share your testimony, read through the scriptures, use a book like some that I've written, be sure that you tell them the story. So let's see, what else does Exodus 10 teach us about our children? Well, our children are in danger from the enemy. God is not the only one who has an interest in the future of our children. So does the enemy. He did then, and he does now. While God was working to deliver Israel, Pharaoh was opposing every move. And guess who he refused to let go? Who did he want to hold on to? The children. After hearing from his advisors who said, let the men go, Pharaoh asks Moses in verse 8, but which ones are to go? Moses replies, this is, this is all our reply. We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our son and our daughters, with our flocks and herds, for we together, our families together must hold a feast before the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here is Pharaoh's response. The Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. Go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Now, Pharaoh wasn't extending a greeting of peace here. Oh, the Lord be with you. He was mocking God. What does he say? The men can go, but the little ones, no. They remain behind. Commenting on this passage, Matthew Henry said, Satan does all he can to hinder those that serve God themselves from bringing their children to serve him. He is a sworn enemy to early piety. Whatever would put us from engaging our children in God's service, we have reason to suspect Satan is in it. He doesn't mind if you bring them to church on Sunday, and then the rest of your days, Monday through Friday, just live in the busyness of life. Do wonderful family things. Just don't mention God again. Just don't tell them the story. And he's fine with that. Satan need but destroy a full generation. Take a generation captive. And you've thwarted the plan of God, or at least he thinks. So he's got our children in his crosshairs. The plan of the enemy hasn't changed. He wants our children captive under the slavery of Egypt. Egypt in Scripture represents the enticement and lure of the world. The moment the people of God left Egypt, Satan and the sin in their hearts began luring them back to Egypt, trying to convince Israel and the Israelites. Egypt is a far better place than the promised land. The enemy will try to convince you of the importance of mathematics, science, history, geography, economics, soccer, football, wrestling, art, music lessons, vacations, and a host of other things. Why? so that your son or your daughter can become a well-rounded person and succeed. He'll remind you of all of that, but Satan will never remind you of the importance of telling your children the story. Why? So that you might get derailed doing good things and miss a great thing. Now, I don't want to speak against a good education or the joy of children participating in sports or music, all of those are good things. But they're not the best thing. And we all know that whatever takes the throne in our lives better be God or it's an idol. So let's make sure that we keep 
first things first and make our first priority before anything else, telling them the story. We need to counter the work of the enemy by telling the story. But here's what happens. We start devotions in our families. We quickly get discouraged, and then we stop, and then we feel condemned. And Satan is there to whisper in your ear, <laughs> you don't know how to do devotions. Look at these kids. They're not even listening to you. Look, they're fighting. Come on, just drop it. It's just, it's so boring. Everything you do is boring. That's what your son told you. Those are just the lies he told me as I'm trying to do devotions with my kids. You know, I'm there at the table in the dining room. Okay, we're going to do family devotions now. And first thing you know, a fight breaks out. And no one's listening to me. I said, we're going to do family devotions. Let's settle down, kids. Let's settle down. We're going to do family devotions. And nobody's listening to me. I said, we're going to do family devotions. Like, oh, that's great, Moy. How do you start family devotions with a nice, good, you know, angry yell? That's, that's teaching them something. You're like, Lord, help me. Why, why, why is it? You know? We're driving to church on Sunday morning, and we get more arguments between our house and church, it seems some Sundays, than we had all week long. It's the enemy. A couple of pointers for you. You're doing your devotions. Expect opposition. You'll feel like all of Hades is opposing you when you try to begin Bible instruction and family devotions. Expect your children to not pay attention. Expect your words to feel like lead falling from your mouth to the floor with a thud. All that is going to happen. Press through. Don't allow the enemy to prevail. It's not about the quality of your presentation. It's about the power of the message. Paul said, I was not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel was the power, is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Who is included in that all? Our children. So your presentation doesn't have to be amazing. It's just that the message that you're sharing must be amazing. And God has given us an amazing message in the story. Devotions do not need to be long. I mean, just again and again and again, I did my family devotions. It took seven minutes, five minutes, ten minutes. Kids didn't ask extra questions. We read a passage of Scripture, read a paragraph of explanation, went through a couple of questions that they answered quickly, and I prayed, or they prayed, and we were done, and I'm left feeling like that was short, that was nothing, that was insignificant. No! No, it wasn't. It wasn't at all. Because the message that I was sharing was a message of power. Ten minutes a day is all you need. My devotions, long story short, old story new, wise up, listen up, they're all designed with ten-minute devotions to make it easy for you. Take the book, sit it down at the dinner table, just to your right, and then when dinner is over, share devotions with your family. I've realized that the best time to do it is after dinner, before dessert. If you do it before dinner, it, it's like a complete disaster. Everybody's hungry. Nobody wants to listen. And if you do it after dessert, you've got no leverage. So you do it after dinner, before dessert. Hey, kids, we're done dinner. We've got ice cream, and uh, listen for short devotions, and then we'll be able to have ice cream. And if you start that rhythm, if you stop, here's an amazing thing. Your kids will remind you to do devotions. You do it five, six days in a row, and you will establish in that short time a pattern. And when you forget, your kids will remind you. Now, Share what God is doing in your life. 
He's adding to the story as he touches you and people around you. God is amazing. He's always answering prayers. He's helping someone. So if you read a scripture in the morning, you're having your own devotions, and you're reading a, a scripture, and you're like, it jumps out of the page. It just affects you, and you're like, oh, Lord. You feel convicted. You know what we do? We tend to, that was great, go on to our busy day and never say a word to anyone. Or we might say a word to our spouse, but we rarely say a word to our kids. What an opportunity. Hey, guys, come here. Come here. Before you go to school, I just got to tell you something. I was reading my Bible this morning, and I, I must have read through that chapter in the Bible a dozen times. These words, let me just read them to you, a couple of words. These words jumped out at me. And you share the words with your kids. And you say, God convicted me. He helped me to see that I was living in unbelief. I wasn't trusting these words. I just had a moment. I was able to pray. And I just felt like a, God freshly lifted a weight off my shoulders. Isn't our God amazing? I'm so excited that He's alive. He affects us through His Word. He spoke to me this morning. He forgave me afresh this morning. All right, well, that's it. I just want to let you know what God was doing. Go ahead on to school. You. You just freshly told them a part of the story. Pray. God answers our prayers. We tend to think of prayer as a last resort. I'll have parents come up to me, you know, as a pastor, they're asking for advice, and um, like, give you a typical one. Um, our our three-year-old daughter, we we moved her from a crib into a bed. Uh, in, you know, we'd had her in a, in our bedroom. We now we think it's time for her to have her own room. We've moved her from the crib in our room to the to the toddler bed, and she just will not stay in her bed. No matter what we've tried. We're wondering at this point if we should get one of those little locks on the door, you know, the little kind of hook things. I mean, she's like, Mom, I need a drink. You know, we find her wandering out. We put her to bed. We, she comes out. We, we've tried discipline her. Nothing will work. And I'll say, well, have you prayed? Oh, prayer, yeah. Oh, yeah, I guess we should do that. Well, it is engaging the most powerful resource in the entire universe and beyond. Your God, we forget to pray. We'll try a hundred practical things. Let's pray. Let's engage the God, the powerful God of the story. Be sure that you evangelize. Share the story with others. It really reinforces how important the story is to you. Think about it. Um, our kids learn how important the story of the Eagles winning the Super Bowl is. Hey, the Eagles won the Super Bowl. Can you believe it? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, we tell everybody. Something happens in uh, work. We start to tell everybody. You know what my boss did? I can't believe it. He just up and quit. He just said, that's it, I've had it, and tossed these important papers right onto the floor and walked out. Can you believe? I mean, that story, it circulates with all your friends, all your acquaintances. Your kids hear you telling it. Kids hear you cheering for sports. Do they hear you sharing the story? Now, I'm not saying that you've got to be this radical evangelist that, you know, every Tuesday you go out cold calling, knocking on doors, telling the story. I had a brother who, as the Spirit of God wiped or, or washed through our, our family, he was not yet a believer. He didn't get caught up in that. My kids knew that their uncle didn't believe in Jesus. And I took opportunity every springtime to do a fishing trip with him for the sole purpose of spending time and to be able to share the story with him. 
We as a family would pray. They knew that I was going with this intent. And then there was a report back. How did the telling of the story go? My father passed away a little bit more than a year ago. And at the funeral, as he eulogized my father, my brother said, I got the greatest thing of all from dad. He's the one who taught me that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He gave me Jesus. I was like, what? My kids, we've been praying year after year after year after year, telling them the story year after year. Wow. Amazing. God is doing a great work. Someone knocks on my door, wants to sell me something. You know, Norman, get out of here. We don't have any time. My wife Lois knows, oh, look, it's another evangelism opportunity. We're going to listen to you, and you're going to listen to me. <laughs> Who's there listening in? My kids. Take opportunity to tell the story to others, and it will tell your kids the story is important to you. Make sure that you're weak uh, from Monday through Saturday, matches your devotion to God on Sunday. Live a life where you talk about the story, where you talk about God, what He's doing. And don't allow discouragement to stop you. Some of you are coming in here discouraged. You feel as though you have failed. I have uh, this theory and I probably mentioned this um, this morning in the message, but Proverbs tells us that the righteous man falls seven times and gets back up again. Failure isn't falling. Failure is just refusing to get back up again. You've fallen off. You're not doing family devotions. You haven't been living a life for the Lord during the week. It's Okay. Righteous man, righteous woman, get back up again. Forget what lies behind and press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of you, the story. So our children were already in the mind of God when he wrote the story. Our children are in danger from the enemy. And the third point um, reveals that God is with us in the battle, and that is our children play a vital role in God's future plan. He's got to have them. That's the way He's organized things. And God's plan will not be derailed by the enemy. Let's, let's look on to verse 12 and see what happens. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt, and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. And they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses, and the houses of all your servants, and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came onto the earth until this day." God is not going to leave the children behind. Moses speaks for God. Okay, Pharaoh, you won't let the children go? Then let every last scrap of green be devoured. The hail has destroyed most of the food crops in Egypt, but now the plague of locusts meant that there would be nothing left for them to even glean from those broken crops to eat. All? Why? Because the children play an essential role in God's plan, and He won't leave without them. Let this be encouraging to you. God here is the one who does the delivering. Moses simply brought the message. So it is with us. We bring the message to our children, but God does the delivering. Why? Because our children are a critical component in God's plan. This next generation that Pharaoh wanted to keep behind, they were the kids who were carried on the shoulders 
of the adults who grumbled and complained and wanted to go back to Egypt and actually never made it into the promised land, except for Joshua and Caleb. But those children, they were the ones who crossed the Jordan with Joshua, and they were the ones who marched around Jericho. They were the ones who believed God that he could knock down the walls with just trumpets. Pharaoh wanted to take them for himself. Why? Get rid of the men. I can make slaves out of these children and haven't lost anything. You want to go? Go. But your little ones, leave them behind. And God says, we will not go through Moses without our children. That's what we got to be like. Enemy? World? All the draws of the world? No. I'm not going to give in to it. Not going to let my children be drawn into it. We're not going without our kids. And I'm not letting the world defeat us. Little Samuel, who God called as a young boy, he was already in the mind of the Lord in the generations. Young David, too young to be brought before Samuel, left tending the sheep. He can't be king. He, young David, was already in the mind of the Lord when this took place. He was saved by the locusts. He became a part of the story. Jesus came as a baby in a manger who grew up to die on the cross he is in the line of the generations who walk through the Red Sea and became God's people Israel. He was already in the mind of God. That part of the story, for God was as good as written already. Young Timothy, to whom Paul said, don't let them look down upon your youth. He was in the mind of God when he sent the locust. And your son and your daughter was already in the mind of God. God sent the locusts upon Pharaoh for the sake of my children, for the sake of your children, and the generations that are to come after them. Look around. Look at all these people here sitting around you. All the men and the women that the glorious gospel has apprehended. You're a continuation of the story that they may know the Lord. That's you. God brought the locusts that the story might be told to you. That powerful story and you would believe. The continuation of the church depends on the next generation. Because God has a plan for our children, a generational plan. It's time to tell the story. It's time to take the story once again to another generation. I now have five grandchildren. And I've thought, what are some creative ways that I could tell them the story? I don't know how long I'll live. So I've begun writing letters for each year, starting with their birth, I'm writing a letter to each of my grandchildren so that when they get to their 13th birthday, they'll be able to start opening up their letters. When they're 13, they'll open up the letter that I wrote when they were born, 14, 1, and so on. As long as that I'm living, I'm going to continue writing letters. So that after I'm gone, the story will carry on. Why? I, I so appreciate Lois's grandfather and what he did. And I want to stand in his shadow. I want to do what God calls us to do here, tell the story. 
That's why he wrote it. In 2018, all of my wife's family gathered into one place. Forty-two of us were there, the children, the grandchildren, and now great-grandchildren that not all loved the Lord. Not all of them were believers. Mark, my wife's brother, one of Grandpa Roush's grandchildren, now in his late 50s, took opportunity to bring to that reunion, we stayed about a week together, to bring to that reunion one of the letters that he received from his grandfather. And he shared it with everyone after dinner. He, too, saved all those letters. So, in conclusion of this message, I want to read this letter. He says, my dear Sonny Mark, it may be that your grandpa will never see you here on earth, for my time is up, and the Lord may call me at any time home to glory. He was always thinking that it was going to be like the next day. But you, you have yet a whole life before you. God gave it to you for a purpose, and that purpose is that we earthly creatures may prepare ourselves for a better place. The preparation is first repentance to God and then faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For without repentance, there is no forgiveness, and without forgiveness, no heaven. And the way to confess is admit that you are a sinner and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then he shared a hymn. He wrote it out probably from memory in its entirety. It's a Samuel O'Malley Clough hymn written in 1860. This is what it says. This is what he wrote to Mark. I have a Savior. He's pleading in glory. A dear, loving Savior, though earth friends be few. And now... He is watching in tenderness o'er me, and oh, that my Savior were your Savior too. For you I'm praying, for you I'm praying, for you I'm praying, I'm praying for you. I have a Father, to me He has given a hope for eternity, blessed and true, and soon He will call me to meet Him in heaven. But oh, that He'd let me bring you with me too. For you I am praying, for you I am praying, for you I am praying, I'm praying for you. When he has found you, tell others the story that my loving Savior is your Savior too. Then pray that your Savior may bring them to glory, and prayer will be answered. It was answered for you. For you I am praying. For you, I am praying. For you, I am praying. I am praying for you. What an amazing thing. What did he say? I'm telling you the story, and God is going to save you. And when he does, I want you to tell others the story too. What a legacy. What a story for all of us to share with our children with the same expectation that when we are in heaven, we'll one day have a reunion when we see our children join us there with the Savior. And that day we'll celebrate. We'll thank God for giving us a story. For being a God who saw through the corridor of time to the generations, the generations that came before us, and Lord willing, the generations that will come through us. Let me just pray. Father, I thank you for this message, this gospel, this story, and I pray that Everyone in this room would have fresh faith. Oh my, I know the story. I know the story's powerful. I want to tell the story. Let me look for my next opportunity. 
And I pray by your spirit you would speak to them, open up their eyes to see the opportunities that they might exercise their telling option and pass the story along. Amen. Well, um, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. If you look at um, Psalm 78, it says in verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. But tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders He has done. We, corporate Israel, now the church, will not hide from them, not our own kids, but the children of the people of God. So if you don't have children, you still have the opportunity to participate in telling this story. That's what Asaph was commending us to. So, you have brothers and sisters, perhaps. You're an aunt or an uncle. You could tell the story to them. Or you have nieces and nephews that you know you get the opportunity. Maybe it's buying a book and passing it on to a family. Maybe it's you actually yourself. Or what about this? Volunteer your services in children's ministry. Join a VBS. Be a part of telling the story through an organized form. So there is plenty of opportunity in the church for us to be telling our story and to do what Asaph suggested we should do. Um, teens have a great way of, like, changing the subject uh, or to say they're not interested in talking about something. Um, what I find is that whenever we get preachy with teens, they kind of turn us off, but they, they love a good story. And um, in all my times with my children, I can't remember a time when they didn't want to hear about something God did in the lives of somebody that I knew. And so there were just exciting stories that took place um, that I would want to tell my kids. Like uh, one of the most recent ones is uh, we have uh, an evangelistic program on Wednesday, Wednesday nights where um, people who are unbelievers come and we kind of share Christianity with them. We, we call it Bridge, and uh, there was a guy there in Bridge, really tough, big guy, and while the worship was going on, he had his hands in his pockets, just firmly down there. And one of our guitar players, one of our guys, he wasn't playing at the time, went over to this guy, grabbed his hands, and yanked him out of his pockets and said, God wants you to praise. And so... Fast forward the tape, God saves this guy, and he points back to that incident. He says in that moment he wanted to, like, you know, just punch the guy in the face. 
But he just began to be softened by it because he was determined he wasn't pulling his hands out of his pocket. And it was like, you know, I don't recommend you do that, you know. <clears throat> but isn't that an interesting story? And you tell that to a teen, an amazing thing God did. And uh, the, the teen is going to listen. And it could be stories from your family that they hear again, stories of God's amazing work. My, my wife, Lois, grew up in a really difficult, challenging home. Her dad was an unfaithful man, very selfish man, very harsh man. The honeymoon, on his honeymoon, he told my wife's mom that he didn't love her, that he married her on a rebound from another relationship, and then in the honeymoon, he played tennis with other women. I mean, that shows you just how challenging it was. And here's the, the kicker. He was a pastor. My wife vowed whatever she did, she was never going to marry a pastor. And so did her sister vow the same thing, and they both married pastors. But when her father was 80 years old and the sons confronted him again, God opened his eyes and he repented of his sin. He sent a letter around to, to all the children, a copy of a letter that he sent to my wife's mom. And what a great story. He confessed that He's only now beginning to see the depth of his sin. Now, I get to share that story a lot. I get to share that story a lot in the presence of my children, of my teens. And what does that story say? That story tells them that God is alive. He's a rescuing God. He can take a man who for 80 years of his life lived in utter selfishness. And God snatched him out of the hands of the enemy. And my children's remembrance of their grandfather as an 81, 2, 3, 84-year-old when he died those years is that he was a man who loved them and played with them, took them to the park and got them ice cream. When we came after his repentance, uh, in, we went to visit him in Vermont, Lois called her sister and said, and she's like, how's it going? What's he like? He's on the floor playing with the kids, I heard her say. And then I heard her follow it up with, no, I'm telling you the truth, Ruth. He is. No, no, he got them. No, no, he did get them ice cream. No, I'm telling you, I'm not making this up. How many powerful stories do we have of God working? Let's make sure that we tell them to our teens. Another good thing that you can do with teens is you can confess your weakness. We're always talking to our teens about their weaknesses, or at least I think we do that more than we realize. But here's one thing that your teens won't ever stop you from, confessing your own failures and sharing with them how you're weak and how you need Jesus. And what do you communicate in that? What part of the story is that for them? It's the part of the story that you don't, you're, you're not sinless yourself, and, and you need a Savior, and He's real to you. You go to Him, and He can transform your life. You want to talk about powerfully used by God. Sometimes we just focus in on being preachy, but when we teach those greater things to our kids of what God's doing, I mean, we want to tell our teens in particular that he is a living God, not just a historical figure who died on the cross 2,000 years ago. He's alive. I mean, that's the message of the gospel. He's alive. And, you know, Jesus said, you know, be better for you that I go, but I will send you another, a counselor, and he will be with you, and he will call to your remembrance all that I have taught you. The Holy Spirit is about exalting Jesus, is about leading us to the Word, about showing us day in and day out all that we need to know to guide us in our lives. Jesus is not here with us on the earth. 
Why is it better for him to go? Because he's limited in a physical body at the time, but the Spirit of God dwells in all believers and the Spirit of Christ, as Scripture calls him twice, is there for us. Pursue a relationship with God, a dynamic relationship with God, and tell your kids about it every step of the way, whether they be grade school or teens, and they'll come to know this. The gospel message is real to my dad. They might think it's not for them, but they won't be able to deny it's right for you. And that is such a powerful example and testimony, and God uses that in the life of our kids. 